following is a reading from the Pale Audiobook Project. Please support the original author at palewebserial.wordpress.com or patreon.com backslash wildbow. Arc 1. Loss for Words. Chapter 3. Avery and her friends sat in the back of a beat-up old pickup. Avery with one hand on her hat, her mask in her lap, and a blanket thrown over her and Lucy's legs, weighed down at the ends by their bags. The wind blew past them, not as cold as it should have been. Avery could finally let herself believe that all the scary moments had been worth it, if things could be this good now. Not that things were excellent, just good. Excellent would require someone she could cuddle up against, and less of this mind-numbing, stomach-gnawing anxiety that came with being the back of a relative stranger's truck as they drove down little-to-known roads into the Canadian wilderness. The sky black and moonless, and the streets unlit by anything but the truck's headlights. It being good, despite everything, said a lot, as far as she was concerned. The awakening was done, and she had her friends with her, and there was anxiety, yes, but there was also relief and excitement. Verona, Lucy said. She had a flashlight about as long and thick as a finger at her lips. She had to pull it out to speak. Shown it on her notebook. Give me one observation about Miss. You've been at this for hours, Luce. I want to finish your section. I'm almost done here. Hours. We're going to sleep tonight, and I... Verona stopped. In the dim light of Lucy's flashlight and the light of the truck's cabin interior, Avery could see Verona roll her eyes, her lips moving for a second before she continued. Can imagine hearing myself in your dreams tonight? Almost screwed up, huh? Lucy asked. I think I'm 100% so far for truth-telling. Then open your mouth one more time and continue that wind streak and tell me one observation about Miss. Verona groaned. Give me one observation about Matthew's truck. Give me one observation about that black bear out in the woods. Give me one observation about that unicorn you dreamt of. You do not seem like the type to dream about unicorns, Avery said. Come on, I don't like leaving things unfinished, Lucy said. Verona reached for one of the chocolate bars that they had got from the last rest stop, and Lucy lunged for it, upsetting the blanket and letting cold air beneath, chilling Avery's legs. Lucy seemed to want to take it hostage, but when Verona got two fingertips on it, pinning it down, Lucy stuck her foot out, kicking it away, and the chocolate bar slid down the length of the pickup's bed to the tailgate's end, stopping it there. Avery watched Verona huff, clearly annoyed by the fact that the chocolate bar was now a matter of feet away, out of easy reach. Tell me, and maybe I can reach it, Lucy said. I'm not going to answer your question until I have a chocolate bar, Verona said. Ideally, that one. You... That's now a fact, Verona said. You shouldn't use minor oats for chocolate bars, Ronnie. Already done. Hey, Avery, you realize you don't need to hold on to your hat. I don't want it to blow away, Avery said. Her position, now that she was done fixing the blanket Lucy had left disturbed, was skewed sideways, one leg extended to the bulge at one side of the truck bed where it accommodated the wheel beneath. Her back was to the bag that she had placed between herself and the truck's cab for cushioning, one hand on her hat, one arm around the lip of the truck's bed holding onto the cool metal. It didn't leave her a lot of room for freedom of movement, but riding in the back of a pickup exposed the elements on four sides, no seatbelt or anything, she liked claiming the security she could. Verona rolled her eyes and picked up her own hat, turned it over. She had a bit of chalk and began drawing. Ave, ignore her, Lucy said. 
and give me one observation about Miss. Um, she keeps things hidden, Avery said. Already had something like that down. I mean, she told me during the ritual that she picked me first. Can you expand on that? It just feels like she can't help but keep a lot of cards up her sleeve. Good enough, Lucy said. She moved the narrow flashlight to her mouth, shining on the books she was writing in, and began taking painstaking notes. Verona leaned closer to try to borrow some of the light, and Lucy leaned away. Verona used the light from the truck's cab instead. She had drawn a circle on the brim of her hat, and within that circle, she had drawn a triangle, with a line through it and a line beneath it. Now she drew branches off to the side with curved arms. Edith had given them the quickest of rundowns before they had left. Four symbols, all triangles, some with lines through them, each with underlines to indicate orientation. They had been encouraged to stick with air for the time being. They had organized themselves in the back of the truck. Lucy had started writing down the symbols before she could forget them, and she nearly lost her notebook to the fierce wind before scribbling over the simple symbol and stopping the effect. They'd sat there, cold and disappointed, debating about whether or not they should knock on the window and ask Matthew to stop. They'd sat in dissatisfaction for about 45 minutes before he had pulled the truck into a rest stop. They'd peed, ordered hamburgers and pogos from a place with more bare wood than paint on the sign, and Edith had explained the rules for particulars again while waiting for the orders, and then they hit the road again. The second time around, they had tried out some of the basics, how you could draw a circle with a rune within it, and have lines radiating out to emit a thing, or have a bar perpendicular to the radiating lines to block that thing, how a square or a triangle could be used, but a circle is often best because it was equally strong around its perimeter. Triangles could impart more force on the rest of the world because they pointed outward, but had points of weakness and points of strength, and thus collapsed, especially if the diagram was unbalanced. There were air signs along the side of the truck now, drawn in chalk on the textured plastic, Triangles pointing up with a horizontal line through them, enclosed in the circles. Each circle had a line extending up and away from it, with a bar at the top, essentially a circle with a capital T at the top. Block the air. After they had drawn that, the chilly wind had stopped being a problem. Verona seemed to be doing something more complicated. Avery watched as Verona experimented, creating three radiating lines that bent at right angles, curved in quarter circles. There was already some chalk on the hat, like there was on the underside of Avery's. Edith's work. What are you doing to your hat? Experimenting, Verona said. This should work. Your hat is... Verona's hat flew out of her hands as the truck continued barreling down the road. The hat flew in the opposite direction and the dark material disappeared into the darkness after about a second. Lucy reached up and pulled the flashlight out of her mouth. Verona raised one hand, reaching up. She raised her voice. Come on! The hat, caught by strong wind, came from off to the left, blowing straight into Verona's waiting hand. Yeah! Woo! Thank you, spirits! Verona called out. Inside the cab, Avery saw Charles' head was turning to peer through the back window at them, noticing the commotion. Verona had brought her hat down to her lap. She spat on the part that she had drawn and started to wipe the diagram away with her sleeve. That could have gone badly, Lucy said. Verona folded the hat so that the circular brim was a half circle, point caught within, and then stuck it into her bag. Maybe, but Miss said earlier that this is about deals, words, actions, and routines. They're listening now, paying attention to our words, watching what we write down. 
And if you do something confidently, there's a better chance it'll work. There's also a chance that you lose your hat and we spend three hours looking for it off the side of the road. Verona smiled. Maybe, but it's about routine too, right? According to Edith, these symbols for wind have been used by a variety of cultures for hundreds of years. They were written about by ancient people. They were passed on, taught, so the spirits know how to recognize them. Uh-huh, Lucy said. And it's the same with our words. The longer we go without telling any fibs, the better we get at making ourselves heard. They said that it's a regular thing with the practice. Habits become patterns, become exceptions for us and for the world. We can set our own small routines. And if we do stuff and it works, it makes it more likely that it'll be a real pattern in the future. And if we make a habit of doing it, a lot of practice and pulling off minor stunts and tricks like that, then it should become a pattern. And then the pattern... Verona left the words hang and hand extended. Becomes expectation. Avery finished. I think that if I need to do something like toss my hat away and have it come back, or whatever, the spirits are more likely to give me a thumbs up and carry on doing what we did before, if I've done it a lot. Avery and Lucy exchanged a glance. Are you going to call me an idiot? Veronia asked. No, Lucy said. I had a feeling you'd be annoyingly good at this. Verona Let's replied. talk to she them with before we make too many assumptions. I think it's smart that you she can point do to the last end of the flashlight back towards the truck. It's a dumb thing to do, Lucy added. Verona twisted around, then knocked on the narrow glass window at the back of the truck cab. It was Charles who slid it open. Avery could hear music playing from within. Charles didn't ask a question or speak. Can we ask questions? Verona asked. We're stopping soon, Matthew said. You could ask then if it's easier. Quick question for now then, Verona said. I don't want to jump to conclusions about stuff, and if I act a certain way with the spirits and practice a lot, it'll become a working relationship? Yeah, Charles said, voice rough around the edges. Avery holding onto her hat, but if it's protected from the wind, would it be good to trust the spirits? Is that a good thing for practicing? If you drew it right, Charles said. Thanks. How long until we get there? Getting where we're going takes a day, Matthew said. We left at 6.05. We should get there at 7.05. That's very precise, Lucy said. Didn't hear that. Very precise, Lucy raised her voice. I'll explain after. How long until we stop? Couple of minutes. Thanks. Charles motioned like he was going to shut the window, checked they didn't want to say anything more, and then slid it closed. The road was long, flat, and straight, with trees set very close to the road's edges, the vast majority of them evergreens. Avery pulled off her hat and checked the rune, and then took her hand off it. It moved here and there with the wind, but it wasn't pulled off her head and lost in the darkness. Her hands freer, she opened a bag of ketchup chips. Even though it was still a small bag, half filled with air, she didn't finish it before the truck slowed and they began to pull off to the side of the road. A campsite. The truck pulled into the parking space. The place was desolate, probably because there were still a couple of places here and there where the sun didn't reach, where there is still snow on the ground. There were two other cars parked in the parking lot. Matthew got out of the car and headed straight for the office. Avery and her friends took a second to disengage from the blankets and bags, standing and stretching. 
Avery had put a folded blanket beneath her and a blanket on top and arranged her bag so the padding and clothes inside were behind her. And she was still stiff and sore. She was faster to get to her feet and get moving than the other two and surreptitiously made her way to the end of the truck where the candy bar had come to a rest against the tailgate. She pocketed it. Share after? Verona asked. Maybe. The truck had been awkward, and the riding in the back illegal, but Charles didn't have a license, and Matthew and Edith didn't have room for six people in the truck cab. Their bags had been strapped down. Avery undid the straps before handing the stuff down to the sides of the two adults. Campground? Lucy asked. It's private. The weather shouldn't be an issue, and keeps us on course, Edith said. Watch a step. I'm fine, Verona said. I can kind of see in the dark if I use my sight. What? Avery asked. She did as Miss instructed earlier in the evening and opened her eyes to the sight. She could see the flare of Edith's eyes and the world partially dissolved on the trees, on the cars. There were a multitude of handprints and footprints. Bands extended like clotheslines or spider's webs across everything, including a band from the truck to the office and another band to the truck and another band extending down to the woods, wrapping around the trees on the way there. Where there weren't handprints and footprints, things were damaged. Bark was peeled and broken, grass black to the point that it looked like there was nothing there, and sections of wall around the camp buildings were splintered and shedding paint. The bands were the interesting thing. They were almost like old film negatives, partially transparent silhouettes standing up and looking around. Almost like paper with sections cut out. Almost like something quilted, layers stitched on. Middle ground between all three? Where there was too much negative, too much cut out, or too little material, the bands looked like they could snap. She could feel like she could look at those scenes that formed the band and analyze them. But she couldn't get close enough. When she moved, they moved. If she walked towards one, it rose higher until it was well above her head. She remembered why she used her sight and tried to analyze the world around her. Movement and motion provoked sheddings of bits of grass, bark, or paint to the point where she could tell that there were things there, but she couldn't see them in the dark. I can't, she said. Me either, Lucy said. You could train your eyes to see that way, Edith said. For now, I would guess your sight is exaggerating your natural abilities and senses, preferences, and your way of looking at the world. You'd guess, Lucy asked. You don't know? No, Edith said. You weren't a practitioner then. Edith picked up Lucy's spare bag, bringing it to her shoulder. Matthew is exiting the building, having paid. Let's get settled first. You were tired? Avery asked, hefting her bag. Charles extended a hand like he was going to carry one. She shook her head. The man's expression was unreadable as he started walking. I know my mom gets bad road hypnosis when the roads are straight and monotonous. It doesn't matter how long we stop for, Matthew said. So long as we're sticking to the journey, it takes one day of travel to get to the Carmine Beast domain. I guess it would be, or have been. They'd agreed that they needed to know about the victim before they could start assessing the people who might have done the victimizing. This, apparently, had been part of the plan and timing, and it was why they'd been told to free up their weekends. Just to be clear, Lucy said, it takes a day, no matter what? If you take a detour or aren't doing something that's part of a singular journey, you may have to start over, Matthew said. Stopping to rest is part of a long journey. We could have walked? Provided you were walking away from civilization? Yes. The destination is wherever you are after you've been traveling a full day. 
but your feet will be sore after you're walking a full day, and the directions call for not just a day's travel, but a day's travel in a direction that takes us farther away from civilization. Taking a car north makes it easier to go somewhere without traveling towards a hub of civilization. Huh, Avery said. Then what? When we get there, there will be a queue. One that only the lost and desperate are likely to follow. From there, it's a short distance to her domain. Lucy is using her flashlight to shine the way. Matt had another bigger one from the truck. Edith turned her head to look off into the trees. Avery, her sight still active, could see a band wound through the trees and along the path, extending to a distant campsite that Edith was looking at. Edith pulled hairs from her head and twisted them together, snapped her fingers at the frayed end. A flame appeared, brighter than either of the flashlights. Campsite 9, Matthew said. Here. They walked down the short path to the site. Matthew set down a large bag. Avery dropped her own stuff near the bench. So, can we ask questions? Lucy asked. She had her notebook with her, but it was still closed. Go ahead, Matthew said. You and Edith. This isn't a formal interview, but... It'd be nice to know who we're traveling with, Avery said. They'd agreed to wait to interview the pair. A casual conversation was better. My name is Matthew Moss. My father taught me some of the practice when I was young. I did a ritual that resembled what you guys did earlier today when I was 10. When we asked your name, what type of other you were, you said host? It's most accurate. I trained as a heartless, a practitioner who gives up a select fragments of my mortality or takes others in pursuit of everlasting life. My father was caught and killed by witch hunters while trying to take the last years from people at palliative care home. Witch hunters are a thing? Avery asked. She pulled off her hat, placing it under the bench next to her, looking over one shoulder. Edith, kneeling by the concrete ring campfire, ignited the wood that had been left there, cold and damp by past campers. Witch hunters are a thing. I wasn't interested in obtaining more youth when I was already young, especially after losing my father. I carried on with the basic practice under my belt, some shamanism, some heartless practice that made life easier without needing to prey on others. I taught you the basics of runes and interacting with spirits and diagrams because they're good to know as fundamentals, Edith said. You can tap into forces like wind, fire, earth, but the spirits can represent anything and everything in this world. A single twig has spirits of wood, the color brown, of life, of pine, nature, things touching it and affecting it. A heartless practitioner can benefit from knowing how to interact with spirits of life or death, how to recognize them. A binder might play closer attention to spirits related to certain emotions. Like knowing your math or spelling, there are very few jobs where you won't benefit from being able to write a coherent email or add up your paycheck. Matthew spoke, staring into the fire with eyes that were cast in shadow that the firelight didn't touch. There are very few practices which can't benefit from something like, I need a little bit more of this, or I need this out of the way while I work. When this could be anything from heat to hate, to a bit more self. Avery was glad for the fire. She had put her hands out. The night was dark, and the woods darker. I bring up shamanism because I noticed a disturbance, and I found the girl by candlelight, a complex spirit. Remember how Edith just said that you can have all of those individual things in a twig? Those things can fall away or separate, and attach to something else. An echo, or a ghost if you prefer to call it that, or whatever event shook them loose shook enough free that the stray spirits were able to clump together. They form into something coherent, 
and a complex spirit that results can be a fleeting existence or a concrete one that gets its rougher edges sanded off by time. Were you more concrete? Verona asked. I was and am fleeting, Edith said. Practitioners have a responsibility to tidy up measures and keep ordinary people from being inconvenienced. Matthew followed a trail of small fires and sightings to me. The ghost of a girl who was suffocated on smoke in a house fire, and the emotions and spirits shed in roadside candlelit vigil for a teenage girl who died in a car accident. A child's pyromania manifested in anxiety and confusion, cast away as the child grew up. These things and other smaller things found each other and were bound together. She was the most interesting thing that I had run into with my practice in years. I tried what I could to keep her fueled and together, Matthew said. I talked to her for hours, sometimes trying to bring out the responses that helped her take more human shape. Seven years ago, a girl named Edith James tried and failed to end her life, Edith said. She suffered severe brain damage and necrosis of the intestinal lining. It wasn't pretty, especially with the grief her family suffered. In the wake of the attempt at hospitalization, there was next to nothing left of her. So, I moved in. The two years I was learning to operate a brain and body were excused as Edith James's recovery. Her family was overjoyed, and the fragments of her that remain inside the body is content that they aren't grieving. And you? Lucy asked Matthew. We found each other again. She needed help. The darkness that haunted Edith, the doom, had become complex in its own way. It wanted fruition. It was trying to attach itself to the candlelight girl within. I made the transition to being a host. A practitioner who takes spirits and other immaterial things like ghosts or elementals into their body. Done well and carefully, hosting is something that lets you draw on its power and qualities. I carved out a hole in myself to take it in, using the practice I was taught as a youth. But Edith's darkness is too large and unwieldy for me. I have power if I need it. I can draw on its strength. But I have to be very careful. I can't really practice and I haven't practiced in seven years, and the practice I can do are all touched by the force I hold inside myself, or directly related to it. Darkness, pain, doom. At this point, I would be better to be considered a human-turned-other than a practitioner. Avery leaned forward. So, you're both kind of the same, but... But different. In the end, I, Matthew Moss, love the girl by candlelight, and... I hope she loves me. I do. And the darkness I house wants to finish destroying her flesh and what remains of the original Edith James. Lucy's finger tapped a patter on the notebook's hardcover. She seemed to be considering. Avery was about to ask something when Lucy came out and said, You kept your last name, Edith. We got married in hopes it would make her stronger against the darkness, Matthew said. And because we were are in love. We decided stability was more important than redefining who Edith James was. Yes, Edith said. I stood doing that thing where Matthew does the talking for Edith, who is quieter, kind of like my second aunt, Avery observed. I guess this could be more of an interview after all, Verona said. This is uh, interesting. There's a bunch more questions I actually want to ask, Lucy said. But I think they should wait until we know more about the practice and the Carmine Beast. 
Charles, can we ask you things? That's why I'm here, Charles said. About your past, I mean. Oh, he sighed heavily. Go ahead. How did you get forsworn? Lucy asked him. I broke an oath, he said. Avery wasn't exactly keen on having Charles with them. When she imagined an axe murderer, she tended to imagine someone who kind of looked like Charles, but with more muscle. Now, being here and watching him, it seemed to her that the kind of person who would be that unhinged wouldn't be doing push-ups or lifting weights. It made sense that they'd be as gaunt as this man was. She wanted to feel sorry for him, but she would have much rather felt sorry for him from a distance without him sitting across the campfire, his freaky face lit from below by the flames, shadows dancing across his creases of old scars. What oath? Lucy asked. I had a friend over, a fellow practitioner. He was a tricky friend. The kind you have to make excuses for or warn friends about before you introduce them. Hmm. Verona made a sound, her chin on her hand. She turned her head towards Lucy. Hmm. And? Lucy asked, putting a hand out in front of Verona's face. He was opinionated. He didn't like to let things go. He came so he could talk about the process of creating another kind of summoning. Tell us more about that, Verona asked. Maybe put a pin in it later, Lucy asked. Let's continue with the basic story. It's not a long explanation. I wanted an invisible presence that would look out for trouble. Something like a roving eye that could check if there were certain dangerous things that hadn't escaped or notice if a boogeyman or a vicious goblin were out there preying on people. So someone could be notified and the monster stopped. My friend was an auger. He would have handled the part where it let it watch and observe. Did it work? Verona asked. Lucy elbowed her friend. Are you going to let us get sidetracked every single time someone talks about practice or others? It's interesting and worth knowing, Verona protested. It tells us about who Charles is as a person. We never got that far, Charles said. I made dinner, we talked, we drank, had the conversation changed several times, and it got on the subject of politics. My grandfather is really political, Avery said. It seems kind of miserable. Charles huffed out a small laugh, and what might have been the first glimmer of anything like amusement or positivity from them since they had met. Miserable, and it feels more miserable every year. Our talk got heated, and argued for the sake of arguing. I argued out of passion. He needled me, using topics he knew I was sensitive about. And I had been drinking. He said something unconsciousable, and I picked up a glass to throw it at him, saw the look on his face, and he looked victorious. I threw it up against the wall instead. How do you get forsworn from that? Verona asked. I didn't even remember back then, but a look on his face told me there was something. Around the time we had first met, he had me promise him that he'd be safe from any harm at my hands or the hands of my guest. I didn't thought that we had had a long-term friendship then. I needed him for one thing, but it was enough, and it still counted later. Note to self, Avery said. Remember my oaths and promises. Be sensible about the ones you do make, Charles said. That wasn't so bad, but it was 
too broad, too long-lasting. If you think you might forget, put a time limit on it. Miss Chocolate Bar, Lucy said, looking at Verona. She turned her attention back to Charles. I thought you didn't hurt him. I realized he had been trying to corner me or pull something. I told him to leave, angrier than I had been. He was. And I have to imagine he still is stubborn. I pushed the table, enough force to make him take that one step towards the door. He did, and he stepped on a broken glass. That was enough? Avery asked. Yes, especially considering the ways of the spirits. Others and old traditions. For much of human history, hospitality and respecting one's guest was one of the most important things. Turning away a traveler in need could kill them. Disrespecting a guest or host could be dangerous. How does it work? Verona asked. What does it look like when you're forsworn? When someone calls you forsworn, as he did, there is a process. He looked me in the eyes, he named the oath, and he named the wrong. If there is no person to do that, then the world has a way of telling you. A crack of thunder, a tremor on the earth, a vision, it can depend. Then the person forsworn gets an opportunity to answer it. It's a heavy thing to name someone forsworn. If the person answers and they didn't actually break the oath, the person trying to forswear them is forsworn instead. He was playing with fire. He knew what he was doing, Charles said. I couldn't answer it. His blood was drawn by my violent actions. I immediately took steps to mitigate the damage. Protections and practices I had set in place were coming undone. My domain was collapsing in upon itself, and I had things within to rescue. I would later find out he had taken some of my things while I was distracted before he left. You could get away with it too, because when you're forsworn, you become a kind of karmic sinkhole. It's open season for everyone. No rights. When did all this happen? Lucy asked. A decade ago. What was the political argument? Lucy asked. Charles raised his bushy eyebrows above his eyes with deep circles beneath them. Is it important? You tell me. It was about prisons. The government then was making noises about privatizing Canadian prisons, following the goddamn American model. When we once had prison system that was top three, top five in the civilized world, it seemed so important then. Now, if it weren't tied to my being forsworn, I might have forgotten that argument entirely. Stupid. What was your relationship with the Carmine Beasts? Lucy asked. I see. We're going there, Charles asked. Am I a suspect? Everyone is, not just you, Lucy said. There was none. I only got a few glimpses of her. I reached out once or twice after being forsworn. There was no answer. Were you angry there was no answer? I'm angry at a lot of things. This world is happy to make you a part of it until you stop being useful and then discards you. Remember that. Keep in mind, always, and maybe you'll avoid getting what I got. Easy does it, Charles, Matthew said. No, Charles said. No, there's nothing easy about this at all. Were you angry at her? Lucy pressed. Charles, still looking at Matthew, still fresh off the retort, seemed to need a few seconds to gather himself. He sounded tired as he muttered, not especially. Why did you reach out to her? Verona asked. 
because among the others around here, she's close to the top. If anything or anyone would change my situation, it would be something like her. When you're facing a life sentence, Veronica, you appeal, you write the governor, you do whatever you can. Verona, not Veronica. It's not short for... Verona was already shaking her head. Sorry. And I... What I said stands. Where were you that night? Lucy asked. I was with Matthew. He brought me things. Magical things? Verona asked. Some groceries, things for putting up a shelf. He wanted access to the books I still keep around. Why? Verona asked. Can you verify, Matthew? Lucy butted in. I went over that night, trading some basics for information. I'm always engaged in some form of research in hopes that I'll have to lug this ugly thing inside me around for the rest of my life. One of the goblins came by to tell us the Carmine Beast was dying. They'd follow it to the edge of the city, but couldn't go any further. Why? Verona asked. Matthew cracked his knuckles. Beside him, Edith laid a hand on his leg. She looked more comfortable and not like the diminished, used wife now that she was by the fire. Matthew answered, because they're goblins, and to put it in the simplest terms, the more civilized an area is, the harder it is for them to venture inside. I left and caught up with the others there. I took note of the witnesses, and we figured out our next steps. And you? Lucy asked Charles. I stayed home. I put up my shelf. I made a late dinner. The goblin was there. Blunt munch. I fed him some of my dinner and gave him some booze. Can he cooperate? He's not as dumb as he looks. He should remember. So he has an alibi. Or either Matthew or the goblin can lie? So you're saying you didn't. And the others will back you up for that. You say you didn't want to, Lucy said, speaking very carefully. Uh-huh. If you did want to, how would you go about it? If I did want to... Kill or vanish the Carmine Beast? It's near or at the top of the food chain, girl. It's... Don't call me girl. Don't do that, Lucy said. Just like you wouldn't call my brother boy. Don't be that guy. Don't diminish me. I didn't mean anything by it so soon after getting her name wrong. Just don't. I'm Lucy. Lucille if you want to be formal, but I hate that. Lucy, I can't seem to win ever. You were saying? I'm saying it's at the top. I'm so far down that I need to rely on people like Matthew here to ensure that I can stay fed. The universe is against me. I can't hold a job, I can't keep a place of my own, and the karma hit that comes being forsworn means I'm on everyone's shit list. I have no earthly idea how I do the deed. Even if I could still practice, like this, impossible. Lucy's head turned slightly. Matthew and Edith were nodding. What could? Avery asked. I don't even know, Charles said. I haven't been paying a lot of attention. I've just been trying to survive. Matthew? Edith? Lucy asked. Who or what could? It's a very short list, Matthew said. We can talk more about the Carmine Beast tomorrow. It's the point of this trip, after all. Should we turn in? Edith asked. If there's no objections, Matthew said. There weren't any. A bit of a lesson while Matthew sets up the tents, Edith said. We've talked about some of the ways that a simple circle can be elaborated on when drawing diagrams. You sense this stuff on a fundamental level. Verona asked. I do, 
Evick said. She reached reach into the fire, which hadn't gotten any smaller or diminished by the ongoing burn. She pulled out a stick. She began drawing in the dirt, walking the perimeter of the campsite to create a larger circle. The T shape forms a bar, if you remember. What happens when we turn it upside down? The circle sitting on the T shape instead of the other way around. Holding something in, Avery asked. Yes, insulating. Triangles serve much the same function. But we've already talked about how triangles are shorthand for the various elements. They point and are more driven, Edith explained. What do you think would happen if we were to drive the heat in? We'd cook, Verona said. Possibly. We don't have a defined power source yet, and no nearby sources of heat, so it's possible and likely the circle would break instead. Verona began taking notes while Edith continued working on the diagram. Blocks for the wind, north, east, south, and west points, while insulation for heat were set at the northwest, northeast, southwest, and southeast. Charles lay down across the bench and seemed to be getting himself settled to sleep there. Matthew shook out the tents. Lucy had pulled out a sleeping bag and was watching all of them. Luce, Avery said quietly, what's up? Avery's eyes fell on Charles. Wanna sleep in shifts? Lucy followed her gaze. They're strangers, and this is all strange, Avery said. What time are we getting up? Lucy asked, her voice loud enough that it startled Avery. The sunrise will probably wake us, Matthew replied. He seemed to know what he was doing with the tent, and with one almost already put together. If we sleep in, sleep stops being part of the travel, and we're already delaying or interrupting the journey. So it'll be sometime soon after we wake up and eat. In eight hours? Lucy asked. Something like that. Two and a half hour shifts? Lucy asked quieter. I can take any extra if we gotta, Avery said. Lucy nodded. Avery got herself settled. Her sleeping bag was thin enough. It was probably for summer times, not winter times. But the diagram was finished, and she could already feel the area getting more cozy, the warmth of the fire gathering within. She situated her bag to where she could sit up against it and watch everything. Verona was sitting inside her sleeping bag, rummaging around. Avery wasn't sure what she was doing until Verona pulled out a sock. She averted her eyes as Verona pulled out her pants as well. This would all be so cool if it weren't for the gnawing fear that hung over everything. It would be nice to get stronger, learn more, and be able to defend herself. The tents were set up, and Edith and Matthew got inside theirs. Charles slept outside, lying on the bench with his face skyward, the crook of his elbow at his nose. Avery sat at the aperture of her tent, watching Matthew and Edith's tent, and the sleeping ex-practitioner. Behind her, Verona and Lucy got settled to sleep. Avery used her sight, made it easier to see moving things, and to see the threads that tied from one thing to another. Two hours was a long time to kill, but she didn't mind much. While she was doing it, she imagined it was good to get the practice in and train the sight of hers. Verona was very good at the practice. Lucy was on top of the investigation. Avery knew she didn't have a lot going for her, so she would do her best at this, at the very least. A knock at the window disturbed Avery's read of the book she had grabbed from the last rest stop. She sat up, she twisted around, and when she couldn't see through the truck's window at the windshield, she stood and took a hold of the rack at the top of the pickup to stay balanced in case the truck started moving all of a sudden. The sun was setting, the sky was red, the trees were thick here, and the road was dirt. 
At the top of the hill at the far end of the road, there was an animal that could have been a stray dog or a coyote. Too small, long-legged to be a wolf. It looked like it had been hit by a car. It was injured. Ah, poor thing, Avery exclaimed. That's it, Matthew spoke through the open window as he turned off the engine. Hugh were supposed to follow. He opened his door and Edith and Charles climbed out. Avery and her friends climbed out. Her hands were gross from not having showered and the dust had gotten on them already. They put down more signs on the plastic lining at the rear of the truck, warding off the dust. Just the grit that had already gotten in there was bad enough when she wasn't in position to wipe it off. They ventured forward, and the bloodied animal slinked into the trees. Matthew explained. The only people liable to follow a random animal are those with nowhere to go, or people who know what the animal is about and want to find the Carmine Beast. Essentially, only the people that the Carmine Beast wants at its doorstep in the first place. What kind of people does it want? Hunters and the hunted, Charles said. Following the animal wasn't easy, but it was bleeding, and the blood trail helped. Until it didn't. There were more places here where the blood had stained the ground and painted the trees, leaves, and grass and weeds and moss with crimson. The blood and traces of snow that spring hadn't yet erased. Blood in the soil and the sand that might have been peat. Until there was more bloody ground than ground without blood. It says a lot about the animal that we're following is injured. Matthew observed. Our witness described following giant canine. It was howling and in pain and mourning, and it was injured. Avery spoke up. So the Carmine Beast was a beast? I know it's a dumb question, but maybe... No, not dumb, Edith said. Its shape varied. Many spirits are similar enough to complex spirits like myself tend to be firmer, either because we're knit together or we can't afford to change because we're that weak. It's a spirit, then? It's more than a spirit. By taking on this role, it's elevated. A god? Brown asked. Or a lesser god? A role, Matthew said. He pushed past some foliage and held a branch out of the way for Edith and the girls. Past those branches was a bit of a cliff and then a clearing. In that clearing, the ground was so blood-soaked, so much more red than anything Avery had ever seen, that the leaves couldn't hold their color and they were more whiter than snow. The trees were cast in blacks and grays, and moisture there appeared to be beaded with crimson and thick. Bones had been dragged to a central location, and the bones had formed an arrangement, crushed or pushed into place by a weight and framing that Avery instinctively knew. That something belonged there, in that nest of bones, and it was absent. There were animals here, all carnivores, but they were listless, bowed, lacking. Again, they were missing something. She could feel the absence weighing on her chest. A throne without its queen, servants without a master. She understood now why they needed to come and see this, to understand the magnitude of what they were trying to fix. A sharp growling behind her made her jump and skip forward a solid three steps. Other animals had crept in through the bone-white foliage. They continued to growl, fancying. Charles Abrams, a woman said. I know, Charles said. There is no shelter for you here, the woman said. No quest, no passage, no currency. I know, he said. Charles was forsworn. 
He gets no court or audience, Edith murmured. There were others present, others who passed through the trees without needing for branches to bend to get out of the way. Court? Do we bow? Verona asked, quiet. No, Matthew said. No need for that. That's human custom. Avery pulled off her hat and held it to her chest, all the same. One woman, dressed in white furs, a man in a black suit, and off to the side, sitting atop the head of a centipede, an older teen, or younger adult, with long hair and flowing clothes in gold. In many places around the world, Matthew explained, his voice low. The group parted as three others made their way past them, deeper into the clearing. There are totems, fixtures, or assertive forces in one part of Asia. I'm not learned enough to know the place exactly. You might have to. The Azure Dragon, or the Vermilion Bird, the White Tiger, and Black Tortoise. In some places, it's only one. Often, their roles similar. We have four here? Lucy asked. Three, at present. You were not the first to come here, the woman in white said. I know, Matthew said. We inducted some new practitioners, and there's no lord in our area, so we thought we would make our introductions. Let them see the Carmine Beast domain and get a sense of what they're doing. Who came before? Lucy asked, twisting around. Other practitioners from near Kennet. The ones who would be investigating if we didn't bring someone in, Matthew said. They know very little, the man in the gold flowing robe said. He still sat cross-legged on the centipede's head. They're fast learners. Can they bring her back to us or name the culprit? The man in black asked. We're going to try. Can we ask questions? Ask, the woman in white said. What are you? What is this? When the practitioners of an area organize to a sufficient degree, they tend to put lords in place. Others are practitioners strong enough to oversee an area, meet out judgment, and deal with problems. But not all areas have those, the man in black suit explained. For other areas, there is a hierarchy. The others self-organize. They handle threats. They keep things in balance, the man in gold told them. But sometimes it's not enough or there's nobody or nothing suitable to fill in that role if someone needs to be laid to rest and there is no death nearby. He indicated the man in the black suit who said, I might step up to handle duties. You're a higher authority? Lucy asked. The man in the black suit answered, A court of appeals, a final stop, or very rarely, a first stop. When a problem needs handling, a specific individuals may find their way to us for a first meeting. People on the most desperate of quests, those seeking answers, those seeking shelter, and people needing salvation. They often find their ways to us when they've exhausted every last option. Each of us take on a different role and share different duties. I suppose we could say no. They could pray to gods, for all the good that often does, the man in gold said, smiling wide enough it looked like his face could crack in two. The Carmine Beast was one of you? Verona asked. She was. What was her role? Lucy asked. She handled monsters, and those who would kill monsters, the woman in white said. She handled matters of war, murder, carnage, blood, and execution. 
justice in its bloodiest of forms. As Avery started, she was suddenly very aware that it could be a rude question, considering these things like the Carmen Beast's family. She decided to ask it anyways because the question bothered her. Was she evil? She was too fundamental of a thing to call good or evil, but she did not have that many friends. This was a little too much. This felt too big. It was starting to dawn on Avery that the reason that Matthew had said that they didn't need to solve this was because it was far more immense than the three of them could even hope to wrap their heads around. I don't mean to offend, but I'm going to be blunt, Lucy said. Do you know anything relevant? The man in the black suit and dress shirt answered, We know very little. It has only recently come to our attention. I suspect we don't know much more than you do. Do the others agree? Agreed, the woman in white first said at the same time the man in gold said, Yes. Do you have any part in this? None. No. No. How strong do you think you'd have to be to kill her, or to make her vanish like this? Lucy asked. To give you an idea of the scale and difficulty, could you end all violence in one area of the Canadian province? The man in gold asked, even for a short while. It's more about having the right information and leverage than having the strength, though strength certainly wouldn't hurt, the woman in white said. Why would someone want to hurt her? Because she didn't have many friends? Lucy asked. She didn't, but you could look at it as vacating a position. There is a power in taking someone from that seat, and there's a power in that seat. Right now, the seat is empty, and it must be filled. By filling it, one other or practitioner will take on the responsibility and the power that comes with it. So it's like the Supreme Court, then? Avery asked. Once you've worked your way through all the lower courts, if the case is compelling, you end up here. As you say. And by taking the role, they get final say. They get to make the laws, essentially. More or less, the woman in white furs said. Are there any limitations on the kind of person or other? They'd need to fill the role to a certain degree. The role would then mold them to itself, and they would be molded in turn. Has anyone applied? Nobody has stepped forward, but this isn't surprising. If one declared themselves for the seat and the role of the next Carmine Beast, there would be a brief period they could be cut down or supplanted. It is easier, and especially amongst the more murderous and dangerous types that would take this role, to let someone else make the first move. We may be forced to select someone, which would make them vulnerable and force them to prove themselves. Who are the other candidates? Verona asked. You know them because they are in Kennet. The first is John Stiles, who is not especially strong, but we think he would serve with the mind to balance, making him our preference. The other is your hungry choir. And how would they serve? Avery asked. We have discussed it and concluded that they would serve in a disastrous fashion, with an uneven hand. The man in the black suit said, the rain is likely because they are strong and is likely to be short. We'll adapt whatever happens. I guess we know who we're talking to next. Two suspects with something to gain. Others who could be the next Carmine Beast. <laughs>